0: Thank you for joining us for the midweek Bible study with Dr. David Wilson. Now let's join Dr. Wilson for a more in-depth study of the Word of God.: Second Thessalonians: The first letter to the Thessalonians was full of encouragement to be ready for the return of Christ. Paul reassured them that their loved ones who died won't miss the big event, that they're going to be okay, that there'll actually be the first act when the Lord returns. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. Most scholars think that the second letter came within about a year of the first one. And between those two letters, the persecution against Christians began to intensify and apparently someone faked a letter from Paul claiming that Jesus had already returned. In fact if you would right quick look at the second chapter verse one it says now brethren concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or trouble either by spirit or word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. So somebody probably sent a letter in in Paul's name saying you missed it. (laughs) The Lord has come and you missed it. And so he's reassuring them. Some of the church members thought that the second coming of Christ was so close that they quit their jobs and began to just wait for Jesus to return. And Paul had to correct that, and he he said if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And Paul begins this second letter by encouraging believers who are going to need to persevere. It's beginning to get difficult to follow Jesus, it's beginning to be a, a hard time for them. And I believe one of Satan's most common temptations is to try to get you to quit. It's easy to start, it's hard to persevere. And, and so, if he can discourage Christians and get them to quit, then they're no good anymore as far as the, the kingdom of God, even, the first temptation in the Garden of Eden was try to get Eve to give up on God's perfect plan. He, he basically whispered in her ear and said, you can't trust God, what he says. Go ahead and stop believing him. Do it your way. And I want to ask you, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever just felt like quitting? Sure, all of us have been there. You just sort of, you know what, I, I just don't want to do this anymore. You're going to give up on yourself or your dreams or your commitment to the Christian life. There's a great blessing in store, though, for people who refuse to quit. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, you read through the scripture, you find people that got to the place where they just were ready to quit. And so as Paul begins this second letter, I believe in these first four verses, he addresses four things that help us to remain unshakable in uncertain times. How do you stay in there? We live in uncertain times. We never know what's going to happen next. We pretty much have our ideas of what our routines are, but about the time you think everything's okay, then something new comes along, and next thing you know, we're six feet away from everybody and can't meet together and who knows what'll be next. How do you remain unshakable? Well, look at verse one and two. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is the salutation, and a lot of times people just sort of skip over that thinking, I want to get to the good stuff. Get me to the practical stuff. Well, folks, I want to tell you there's something very practical here because if we're going to remain unshakable in uncertain times, we must continue to assemble in with our church. Assembling with your church. A lot of people think they don't need the church. Many times we, when we read Paul's letters, we just skip over, but I don't want you to skip over that word church. It's one of the most common words in the New Testament. It appears over a 100 times in the New Testament. The first time it appears is in Matthew 16 when Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, in Matthew 16, and 18. The last time you see the word church appearing in the Bible is in Revelation 22:16 16 when it says, Send this message to the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. The word church is the word ecclesia, the called out ones. The ones who've been called out of the world, they no longer belong to the world. Those of us who are part of Christ's church have been called out to live a different kind of life. We're not better than other people. We've just been called out of darkness into light, out of sin into righteousness and holiness, and we've been called out to live a different kind of life. And and I want you to notice the the language that Paul uses in verse 1. It says, to the church of... The Thessalonians in God, the church of. We're the church. The Holy Spirit lives in us. In the Old Testament, when the priest offered the sacrifice in the temple, the glory of God would fill the temple. God no longer has a temple for his people. He has a people for his temple. God doesn't live in this building. He lives in you and me. And the Bible says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And that's true individually, but it's also true in a corporate sense. Jesus dwells in his body called the church, and when we meet together in his name, he manifests himself in a special way. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them, Matthew 18, 20. And and, you know, sometimes you just, I, I love it when people who visit come in and say, I just feel the Holy Spirit working here. Well, that's because when we gather in God's name and we lift up Jesus and we worship him, the Spirit of God manifests himself his self in a a way that's very special. Why do you go to church every week? Now, we're past the drug problem, most of us in here, where our parents drug us to church every time the door was open. Nobody's dragging you to come anymore, so why do you even come? It's because you like the music or the message. I hope you come because you want to gather with God's people and have a personal encounter with the Lord. And and when we gather together, the writer of Hebrews warns us that we should not forsake this wonderful gathering. We got a good taste of that this last year, didn't we? Those five or six weeks that we didn't meet. I'm gonna tell you there's something about gathering together and when we began to open the doors up and a few people began to trickle in, I still remember that day, because it was so sweet just to see other believers. I can't tell you, being up here preaching, you know know what the worst part was? It wasn't necessarily preaching to empty chairs. It's when I left out of here and the halls were silent. I thought, nobody's here. Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhort one another, encourage one another so much more as you see the day approaching. The the more you see, the closer we get to the second coming, the more important it is to meet together. A pastor was once asked to define faithful attendance at worship. Now I wanna tell you, you're gonna get a lot of different definitions today. Because some people think, well I come once or twice a year That's faithful. There'll be people come on Easter, and Easter's coming a few weeks. I'm faithful. Well, here's how the pastor gave the definition. He said, all all that I ask is that we apply the same standards of faithfulness to our church activities that we would apply to other areas of our life. Now that doesn't seem like too much to ask. The church, after all, is concerned about faithfulness. Consider these examples. If your car started one out of three times, would you consider it faithful? <laughs> if the paper boy skipped Monday and Thursdays, would, he, would they be missed? If you didn't show up at work two or three times a month, would your boss call you faithful? If your refrigerator quit a day every now and then, would you excuse it and say, oh, well, it works most of the time? If your hot water heater greets you with a cold shower one or two mornings a week, are you going to call it faithful? If you miss a couple of mortgage payments in a year's time, the mortgage company is going to say, oh, well, 10 out of 12 not bad. If you miss worship and attend meetings, only often enough to show you're interested. Are you but not often enough to be involved. I'm not trying to be legalistic, but I'm amazed at people that never come who say they're members. Um, The lack of interest in gathering together is a mark of how much we need a fresh wind and fresh fire from God today. More, More Americans worship the God of recreation on Sunday now than worship the Creator. Most Americans do. With apologies to King David, here's a psalm to the God of recreation. Recreation is my shepherd I shall not worship. It maketh me to lie down in a sleeping bag, leadeth me down the interstate each week. It restoreth my suntan, it leadeth me to state parks for comfort's sake. Even though I stray on the Lord's day, I will fear no reprimand, for I am relaxed. My rod and reel, they comfort me. I anoint my skin with SPF 30. My gas tank runneth dry. Surely my trailer will follow me all the weekends of summer, and I shall return to the Lord's house this fall. But by then it'll be hunting and football season. There's nothing wrong with taking a vacation. Kent Hughes in a book called The Disciplines of a Godly Man states, church attendance is infected with a malaise of conditional loyalty which has produced an army of ecclesiastical hitchhikers. The hitchhiker's thumb says, you buy the car, pay for the repairs and the upkeep and the insurance, fill the car with gas and I'll ride with you. But if you have an accident and you're on your own, and I'll probably sue. So it is with the creed of so many of today's church attenders. You go to the meetings and you serve on the boards and you serve on the committees and you grapple with the issues and do the work of the church and pay the bills and I'll come along for the ride. But if things do not suit me, I'll complain, probably bail out. My thumb is always out for a better ride. You folks are here because you want to be. I remember a time when we thought Wednesday nights were <laughs> was extra credit. <laughs> Y'all heard about the man that was, when he died, that he went, got to the gates of heaven. There was a long line to get in. And he looked up ahead and he could tell they were checking something. He got real nervous. So he slipped up around the line to see what they were checking and All of a sudden, he came back going, yippee, yippee. They're not counting Wednesday nights. (laughs) Well, the fact is, you're here because you want to be. You You want to be with God's people. You want to study the word. Being a Christian involves a solitary decision. You need a team. If you're going to stay unshakable, You've got to have a spiritual team with you. We're not Lone Ranger Christians, are we? No, we need each other. With warts and all and as different as we are, we still need each other. You may have heard the name Diana Nyad. She was a long distance swimmer for many years and at the age of 28, she tried to swim from Cuba to Florida. She tried again and failed. She failed a total of four times, and most people would have given up, but not her. You may know that in September of 2013, she became the first person to swim that distance without a shark cage, and she succeeded at the age of 64. She swam 110 miles through shark-infested waters, battling stinging jellyfish, for 53 hours of nonstop swimming. And when she stumbled ashore, she was exhausted, but she took the time to say, I've got three messages. One is we should never give up. Two is you're never too old to chase your dreams. And three, it looks like a solitary sport, but it's a team effort. It took a lot of people to help her get that far. Well, if you're going to continue to mature and you're going to persevere and remain unshakable in uncertain times, you've gotta be in the habit of assembling with your church. Now the church involves two kinds of people. Well, not really two kinds, it involves people of grace. It says grace to you and peace. Now these words always go together in Paul's letters. You'll never have inner peace until you've experienced God's grace. And without God's grace, you have no hope. When the Greeks greeted each other, they would use this grace to you, but it wasn't a spiritual term. It was like saying goodness to you. And we still say good morning or good day. But grace became the central theme of Paul's theology because we're all sinners saved by grace. Grace. You didn't save yourself, you're saved by God's grace. Grace is giving you something you don't deserve. Mercy is withholding what you do deserve. So by God's mercy, withholding the wrath and the punishment, by His grace, He gives us salvation through Jesus Christ. But there are also people of peace. Actually, Paul's combining two customs of his day. By contrast, the Jews greeted each other by saying shalom, which means peace. And the early church was composed of both Jews and Gentiles, or Greeks, and they sometimes had conflicts. And Paul was showing that by these, with these two cultures, they could come together under Jesus. So he invented a new greeting, grace and peace. Grace is always first, along with the Aramaic phrase Maranatha, which means the Lord comes. Grace and peace became a distinctively Christian greeting. The people of God have the presence of God which brings peace in their life. Peace is the presence of God. And gathering together for worship and instruction encourages love for others and good works and mutual accountability. We exhort one another to stay in there. And When somebody's discouraged, we encourage them and pray for them. When somebody wants to quit, we say, no, 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 no. Don't quit on this. I read an article that likened the Christian life that, that likened a Christian without a church. It's like a student who won't go to school. It's like a soldier without an army, a citizen who won't vote, a seaman without a ship, a child without a family, a drummer without a band, a ball player without a team, a honeybee without a hive, a scientist who does not share his finding with his colleagues. People say, well, why do I need the church? Two reasons. You need it, and they need you. When you come, you're an encouragement to other believers. Isn't it sad how many people come in with such a selfish, focused on them, Is such a narcissistic a- a- attitude, it's all about them. You better entertain me. You better make me happy. You better not be in my seat. You better let me, you better not be in my parking place. You know, you better be nice to me. The temperature ought to be just perfect and so forth and so on. And we come in thinking, what are you going to do for me? When we ought to come in and say, Lord, what can I do for them today when I come in? The second thing is advancing in your faith. Look at verse three. We are bound to give thanks, to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting because of Because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. Let me stop right there. Not only were they consistent in their meeting in the church, Paul pointed out that there was growth in their faith. The word faith means faithfulness. It's translated faithfulness sometimes. It's a good place to stop and ask yourself, am I growing as a Christian? Am I growing in my faith? Because if anything that's healthy is going to grow, and if you're healthy in your walk with the Lord, you're going to grow and you're going to mature. Theologian F. F. Bosworth wrote, "Most Christians feed their body three hot meals a day, and their spirit one cold snack a week." And they wonder why they're so weak in the faith. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he chided them for their immaturity. This church was all had all kinds of problems and they were fighting and, and fussing and had factions and he said in 1 Corinthians three, brothers I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, you were mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready, you're still worldly. When parents bring home a newborn baby, they're so excited, that baby is cute, everyone oohs and odds about this beautiful little bundle of joy, but if that baby doesn't grow, parents know something's wrong. And in the same way, when we first come to Christ, there's a time when we're spiritual infants, but you don't stay an infant in your faith. You mature. There's a paradox here in the Christian faith because of the analogy of a child. Jesus told the disciples, unless you become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then Paul writes, well, you you cannot remain as children. You must grow up in your faith. Well, the difference is childlike and childish. (laughs) Childlike faith says I trust I trust you, Lord. Childish is when they act with selfishness and self centeredness. I don't know about your children, but our children, they really didn't care how we felt as children, all they cared about was themselves. Every now and then you'd get an I I love you mom or I love you dad, but you know, they didn't care if they woke you up in the middle of the night. They didn't care if you were tired. All they cared was about themselves. I'm hungry. I want you to do this for me. I want this. I want that. Well, that's childishness. Well, as Christians, we grow. We get past the point of always being so self-centered and selfish. We start to think of others We begin to exercise our faith and and maturity. Faith is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the more it grows. You begin to, to mature in the Lord. There's a third thing. Look at verse three. And the love of every one of you abounds, all abounds toward each other. And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. You're going, to, you're, going to go, you're going to assemble with your church and, and you're going to grow in your faith but you're also going to abound or overflow with your love. Paul not only thanked God for their growth, he was thankful that they kept loving each other and it grew. Some people call 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter. But you really don't. Really want to know where the real love chapter is? It's 1 John 4. You see, in the love chapter, verse, in the Corinthian chapter 13, love appears 11 times. But in 1 John 4, it appears 24 times. 1 John 4, for example, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he's given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. There were times I wondered if I was going to love my brother. <laughs> well, actually I did love him and we learned a lot of social skills growing up together. I learned how to deal with difficult church members. (laughs) Only I don't punch them out now like I did my brother. You know what? If you've got siblings, there are times that you think, how in the world am I ever going to love them? But you know what? My sister and my brother, I don't have next to my wife, obviously. My wife is my best friend. But I love my brother and sister dearly and love to be with them, because we've become more mature, and, and now we don't duke it out if we have a disagreement. Well, in 1 John, John is a writer, and John, what did John call himself in many of his writings? The disciple whom Jesus loved. And he made three definitive statements about God. He said, first of all, God is spirit, God is light, and God is love. Now, the Bible doesn't say love is God. It says God is love. In other words, love doesn't define God. God defines love. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, I just don't believe a loving God could ever send anybody to hell? Well, they've got some sentimental human idea of love and they try to impose that definition of love on God, but God loves you with an unconditional love. And he loved us while we were sinners and sent his son to demonstrate his love and his love demands a response, we love him because he first loved us, he came to us. And John wrote that you couldn't say that you love God if you don't love your brothers and sisters and he uses very strong language, he says, you say you love God but you don't love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you're a liar. That's pretty stout. Y'all have heard the name Jim Cimbala who was the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, is the pastor. He tells a story how one Easter Sunday evening, after the services, people were milling around and he was tired and depleted from that day of preaching but, and, a, and a poor homeless man approached him. Obviously a man who you would might call, he was homeless, and obviously a wino. <laughs> And Jim said his first reaction was, where are all my staff members to keep people like this away from me? And he probably just wants some money to buy some more cheap wine. So Jim said the man smelled so bad that he had to turn his head away to take a breath. He found out the man's name was David that he was sleeping on the streets. So Jim pulled out his money clip. He was going to offer him a few dollars and send him away and to his surprise, David said, I I don't want your money. I want your Jesus. I just heard you talking about him tonight and if I don't find Jesus, I'm going to die on the streets. Jim said God convicted him on the spot. He began to weep, and he suddenly grabbed David and hugged him. And he said it was as if God said, you don't like this smell? I love this man and his smell, and so should you. And Jim said that in that moment, his odor became a sweet aroma. Jim told him about Jesus, and they prayed. He helped him get into a 60-day detox program. They found him a place to live. They hired him to do maintenance job at the church. David gave his life to the Lord and began to memorize scripture. A year later, David shared his testimony in the church, and it was obvious God had called him and gifted him to preach. They ordained him, and today he's an associate pastor in the church in New Jersey. Jim Cimbala says that God sent him David to show him that people don't need just a handout. They need our love. And God's gonna send some people into your life that are difficult to love but don't give up on them because God didn't give up on them. God may have sent them in your presence to help them find Jesus. You keep on persisting and growing in your love for others. You haven't really loved someone until you share with them how to find Jesus. And Jesus can change your life. So if you're going to remain unshakable, you've got to keep assembling with your church You keep growing and advancing in your faith. You keep abounding in love for your brothers and sisters and others without Jesus. And then there's a fourth thing. You keep abiding. You keep staying in, even in your trials. Look at verse four. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience, and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. What are three of the most valuable Christian virtues? Faith, hope, and love. Well, you see all three of those here in this passage. Faith reaches up toward God in response to his grace. Love reaches out to other people in response to God's grace. Hope reaches to the future to trust God regardless of the circumstances. Now the word patience in verse four is another word for spiritual stamina, to stay in there. Stamina is the ability to keep on going even when you're tired. In life, you're going to have some painful trials. Jesus didn't say, in the world, you might have tribulation. He he said, in the world, you will have tribulation, John 16, 33. But be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. You're going to have some painful trials. You can't avoid them. You don't have any control over all your circumstances. Has nothing to do with how strong your faith is. Even even if your faith is strong, you can still have some painful, trying circumstances. You have no control over the circumstances, but you do have control over how you react in those circumstances. You see, James was the half-brother of Jesus and the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. The believers were facing persecution and trials, and what did James write in James chapter one, verses two and three? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. The word many trials, means multicolored trials. Later in that letter, he talks about the multicolored grace of God to cover those trials. When some people face adversity, they get bitter. But the Bible says we should rejoice because our trials can actually make us better and stronger. There's great value in enduring trials with a smile the bible is full of people who could have been victims but because of their faith they became victors there's something to be said for the persistent attitude that says i will not give up i will not quit i'm not going to give in joseph's a perfect example In the book of Genesis, you read about Joseph who was unfairly imprisoned in Egypt. His life was full of disappointment and adversity, but he refused to give in to bitterness. He never gave up on God. In fact, as he looked back in Genesis 50, 20, it says, you intended to harm me. He was talking to his brothers who sold him, lied about him, said he was dead. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Sakiro Honda was a simple person. He designed a new piston to improve the performance of automobiles. He was sure his attempt would yield breaking results, and he offered his designs to Toyota. But the engineers turned his offer down without even meeting him but he didn't lose heart. He repeated his attempts to get, at the meeting, Toyota engineers finally, they even though they had ridiculed him not losing heart, he went into great details to finally convince them and at last, Toyota ordered a supply of his pistons to put in their motors. So Honda invested all of his resources, his money, his materials, his knowledge, his hard work, as capital and constructed a plant for producing these pistons. But suddenly there was an earthquake in Japan that destroyed his factory. Yet he, re- he, he f- refused to give up and had faith in his own abilities so once again he started to construct his factory. And when it was ready and the production was just getting started the following week, World War II broke out. Bombs came to Japan. Most of the country was devastated and so was his factory. And although Honda lost his factory, his property, his wealth, and his friends, he still refused to give up. So he continued his efforts and began to construct his factory for a third time. And I don't have to tell you today that the Honda automobile company sells many, many cars. In fact, more cars than some of the other types of cars. Some of you probably drive in a Honda. Perseverance. I heard a parable, it's not in the Bible by the way. <laughs> One day a farmer's old donkey fell in, a, fell in an abandoned well. The donkey started making a racket from the well and he was hee-hawing up a storm and the far, when the farmer heard it he found that the donkey had fallen into that well and there was no way he could get him out. And since the donkey was old and crippled and the well needed to be covered up, he decided he'll just bury the old donkey in the well. So he called his friends and they were going to have a time when they would dig and throw dirt with the shovel into the well. So they started throwing dirt in the well, first the donkey Began to protest, but soon the old donkey got quiet and he refused to give up. After a few minutes, the farmer looked down in the well and was amazed at what he saw. For every shovel filled, uh, for every shovel of dirt was tossed on his head, the old donkey would just shake it off and step up on it. And as he continued to fill up the well, the donkey continued to shake off the dirt and step up. Pretty soon, the dirt level reached the edge of the well and the old donkey stepped over the edge and trotted off, hee-hawing and leaping for joy. In this life, you're going to have some trials. You just need to step, shake it off and step up in faith and say, Lord, I'm not going to quit. Don't quit. The Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is a marathon. A lot of people sprint for a little while and they say, I'm done, I'm tired, I quit. Marathon, you keep on going for the long haul. The Bible says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not Give up, Galatians 6, 9. Don't quit. Don't give up. I learned a long time ago, Monday Monday morning, Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, you ask my sweet wife over here, I'm about as tired as I can be during the week, and I learned a long time ago, don't turn your resignation in on Monday morning even though you feel like it. (laughs) Don't make any life-changing decisions when you're tired. You'll make the wrong one. That's when you need other people to come alongside you and, and encourage you and pray for you because Satan wants you to give up. He wants you to quit. But God wants you to keep on keeping on in the name of Jesus, enduring painful trials It's not a suggestion, it's a necessity. And Paul is saying, and you're going to see about being unshakable in this whole book. Staying in there, don't quit. Even when you get get discouraged, you don't quit. So maybe tonight some of you think, you know what, I've got my resignation in my purse or in my pocket. Well, God didn't want you to turn it in. He's just saying you just keep on keeping on. Wise man told me, it's my dad. He said, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is just hold on. Well, actually God does the holding on, but don't let go. And sometimes that's all it takes. Sometimes you just need some rest, sometimes you need the encouragement of other believers. And I want you to remember this, at any given Sunday, people walk in here and they wonder if anybody cares about them. They do. Will anybody talk to me? Will anybody speak to me? Don't just speak to the people you know. Get outside your comfort zone a little bit because sometimes a simple handshake or a smile or a welcome could be just what that person needs because they're wondering, I've come in here, I wonder if anybody will care about me. They may not look like you They may not smell like you, but God told us to love them. I'm thankful for a loving fellowship here. I really am. I know that that, uh, we're not perfect, but I really feel like that in your hearts you love each other and you love people and you love the Lord, and and that's what's drawing people, part of it. The Lord's bringing them, we're lifting him up, the Lord's bringing them, but part of it is the love that you have. Again, next week, no Wednesday night because of spring break and we're doing lots of lots of um, cleaning. Please, the following Wednesday, if you could let us know you're going to eat by Tuesday night, it would help us. We're not gonna turn you away, but it would help us and... <clears throat> Don't forget to set your clocks ahead. I'm going to do my best to do it without grumbling. (laughs) I've already grumbled about it, and it's not even here yet. I get up at 5.30 on Sunday morning, so that means it's going to be like 4.30 on Sunday morning. So if you see me yawn in my own sermon Sunday, you're going to know why. I give you grace every week when I see you yawn while I'm preaching. So you have to give me grace on Sunday. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the love that you've given us. Thank you for these wonderful people. And you know how much I love them. And I thank you for the love that we can share in Jesus. And what a glorious thought to think we get to spend eternity together. Lord, help us to be a loving fellowship, to love each other, to be kind and patient and to give each other grace. I pray for those that may want to quit. They're discouraged. I pray you'll encourage them, God. Let them know you haven't left them. You're right there with them. You know what's going on. I pray you'll encourage them. Thank you for your word that tells us It tells us to meet together. It tells us to hang in there. It tells us to keep our faith in you and to love each other. And even when we're going through painful times or going through trials, to keep our eyes on you. So I pray that you will help us to do that. We do pray for the service this Sunday. Lord, we pray that somebody will come to know Jesus. Thank you for a sweet fellowship We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I want to do a little survey. How many of you have ever heard a sermon out of Obadiah? Anybody? One. There's there's a couple. Well, I've never preached out of Obadiah, but I am Sunday morning. And the good news is We'll read all 21 verses and that'll be one less book you have to read next week. (laughs) This is gonna be a good time for you to catch up. All right, God bless you. Y'all have a great evening. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to watch more live streams or additional Bible studies, please go to southchristlive.tv. We hope to see you again next week.